Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This episode is part three of our Explore series. Lead pastor Jeremy Flanagan challenges us to overcome the obstacles that get in the way of sharing our faith. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's next steps. What I want us to look at today, and it's the idea of leaving the dock, and I'm going to share a story about some explorers in a minute. Um, but the idea that our passion for our goal, which it works on almost anything in life, but specifically as a church for sharing the gospel as believers, that our passion for our goal of sharing the gospel, it has to be greater than our fear of the risks or the fear of failure. Our passion has to be greater than those things or we will never move forward. We won't go anywhere. If all we can focus on are the risks ahead, the unknowns, or fear of failure, then we will never take a step forward. So we have to move on faith in spite of our insecurities. We're all going to be insecure about different things in life, and they can either shackle us or we can break through them. If we're waiting until we feel completely safe, until we feel completely confident, until we feel completely secure or prepared, then we will never make a step forward. Because feeling safe and secure and prepared is not what motivates us. Right? That's what gets excuses out of our way. That may calm a little bit of fears and nerves, but that isn't what motivates us to go do something. I feel completely confident in my knowledge of the Bible. That motivates me to go share it. No, it actually doesn't work that way. I feel like I'm a people person and I can talk to people without getting nervous. I'm going to go have gospel conversations. No, I know a lot of people, you know, people, people, people. How do you say? I don't understand. People, person, I'm not sure. I know a lot of people who are good at talking to other people, not me. And they still don't go out and share the gospel. What gets us moving forward with our goal, what gets us moving forward is our passion for that goal, our passion for that thing, our passion for that that, you know, that, that thing in front of us that we want to reach out and grab is what motivates us, whether we feel prepared or not. And so as believers, we have to be passionate. We have to be consumed with desire to share the gospel of Christ, consumed with desire, consumed with love for the people around us. And we can't wait on everything else to be in place before we go. So June 5th, like I say, it's a day coming up. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I... I hope you'll go with us. We're going to do three different things this summer. We've got this on June 5th where we're simply putting door hangers on doors. That's it. All right? We're just going through neighborhoods. We're just canvassing. We're just putting things on doors. And for some of you, that's going to be a giant step because you're fearful of having conversations with people you don't know or you're fearful of having conversations uh, about Christ because you're worried about what they may ask. We're not asking you to do any of that. Quite honestly, if someone steps out their door and tries to talk to you about Jesus, just uh, talk to them for a second, be welcoming, invite them to come worship with us. And if they really want to keep having a conversation and you're uncomfortable with it, ask for their contact information and say, actually, our pastor will come and he could talk with you today, or I'll get together with you another time and and put it off. I mean, we're going to give you ways to this first day, June 5th, make one step forward, conquer one fear, Get out and do good things, all right? And so we really want everyone to try and commit to help do that. And if you can't do it on that day, then get with me because guess what? Door hangers and doorknobs don't necessarily 
only work on June 5th from 9 to 12. We can find other times to help you do that. So, uh, so help, help us be able to go connect with other people and for you to take that step. Then the next month, we're going to encourage people to have some neighborhood, a party in your neighborhood. No gospel conversations really whatsoever. Just get to know your neighbors. Kind of back to that, you know, that sermon series we had last year. Just getting to know your neighbors. Because if you don't develop relationships with the people around you, then you're going to have a very small pool of individuals to impact. And so, first one, there's really no risk. The second one, eh, there's only risk of them not liking you as a person. But that's okay. You can get over that. But really just trying to get to know your neighbors and trying to make some of those connections. And then in July... Um, or it may be early August, I can't remember the date. We are going to go out, do door hangers again, but we're also going to knock and have some conversations with people uh, in the way of like a two-minute survey. And so your conversation is going to be very structured. You're, you're not going to have to go off script if you don't want to. We're trying to implement these things so we can help you make small, then bigger, then bigger steps to get comfortable sharing your faith. Because if I asked all of you here, do you want to people, see people come to know Jesus as Savior? I would assume and I would hope that the answer from everyone is yes. But then if I asked you, what are you actively doing to make that desire a reality? We'd, it, that's a harder question to answer, right? I mean, it may be an easy question to answer because the reality is, is that we may not be doing anything. And I'm not, if you say, oh, Jeremy's picking on me. No, I'm, I'm saying us, right? Staff included. I mean, I have a lot of gospel conversations, but how many do I have outside of the people that I'm ministering to within Pathway? Not that many. I have to work hard to create those. All right? And so all of this is designed to move us forward and take step after step after step. It, you know, increasingly a little more difficult, but in the end, it's still not that difficult. And I would love if y'all would commit to three days this summer, not even all day long, just a few hours of those days to do those things. I can't tell you how much of an impact it will have on your life and on our church if we did. Starting with the impact it will have on your life. If you say, I want to see people trusting Christ as Savior, and then you actually take steps to make that happen. Instead of just saying, oh, I wish that would be a nice thing. Because in the end, it takes people getting out and going and exploring where no one else has gone. Tilling the ground that nobody else has worked. I love a, a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. But it's hard to be that person. It's nice to walk on trails that are already beaten down where the, you know, the grass is out of the way, where you don't have thorns ripping into your legs or ripping into your clothes, where you know where you're going. Uh, it, it's, it's much easier to do that, but someone had to go first. So whenever I think about exploring as a staff, when we were having our staff retreat and we were pulling all these ideas together, I said, you know, we're going to have a lot of stories about Lewis and Clark. When I go to exploring, those are always the guys I loved as a kid growing up. And so we may not have that many, but you're getting one today. So Lewis and Clark, before Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, opened a line of, of uh, sporting goods and other hiking equipment. 
I did wonder if their family gets royalties off their names or not, because I read an article about Bob Ross's family suing because everyone is buying Bob Ross bobbleheads now. But uh, before those guys had stores selling kayaks named after them, they actually went out and explored more than probably anybody in the history of the United States. And so if you're not familiar with what exactly Lewis and Clark did, or maybe you're just a little familiar with it, uh, the Louisiana Purchase, and I have a map up here, just, you know, I'm a map person. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase back in 1804, uh, 1803, when it started, I think 1804 is when they signed. No, 1805, I was wrong. No, 1805 is when it became Louisiana Territory. Uh, so 1803 is the purchase. And so for 15 million bucks, so the cost of six pathway facility and properties, for the cost of that, they bought the entire Louisiana Purchase, which started in Louisiana and took up the entire Midwest. All of Arkansas is included in that, over in Oklahoma, all of that area. It almost doubled the size of the United States at the time. And it was important not just simply because, hey, we want a lot of extra land that we can control, but as a new country, I mean, 1776, right? That's not too far from 1803. So in less than 30 years, um, Thomas Jefferson was president at this point in time, they were trying to now compete on a global scale. And one of the things they wanted to do was to get a passageway from the East Coast to the West Coast. And he was really, really hoping that the Missouri River kind of starts there off the Mississippi and St. Louis and goes to the Rockies, would meet up with the Columbia River, which they knew about from the West Coast, um, and uh, there between Washington and Oregon, and that he was hoping that there would be a water passage linking the two. And so the Lewis and Clark expedition was really all about that. You were trying to get this water passage between the two. That way you could dominate trade coming in from Canada. So we could hopefully not rely on, you know, every, from the British and everybody else for all the goods from, you know, from the, the east, from China and other places. And so he found, you know, these guys. I mean, um, he, he knew them. One of them, he knew them from childhood their families knew each other, and he actually worked for him as a personal secretary. Uh, and, uh, and that was Lewis. And then Lewis brought Clark along, who he had served in the military with. And they went out to, to do this trip. But when I say trip, I mean, that it, it took years. It was 8,000 miles across land that nobody had mapped. They knew very little about. They didn't know all the different Native American tribes they were going to come across. They, they didn't even know if a river would connect. So, I mean, it wasn't a trip. It was, a, it was, it was very difficult. But I, I want to show you some of the things they, they did to prepare. On the next slide, what they did to prepare is uh, Lewis went and he met with uh, some of Jefferson's top advisors and everything else uh, and uh, went to Philadelphia where he was instructed in um, the natural sciences just to know about plants and everything else. They were asking him to catalog as much of that as he could uh, astronomical navigation to be able to know from the stars, right? Kind of where you're at and just like a, a sailor would. Um, because, I mean, you don't have anything when you're out there. There's no road signs. There's no trail. And so be able to look at the stars and figure out where you're going. Field medicine uh, to be able to just do the basics to treat people and keep people alive. And then the supplies that they gathered, just some of them, some of the basic stuff that they wrote about and talked about were obviously all the navigational instruments, the surveying instruments, compasses, quadrants, telescopes, sextants, chronometers, all of those things um, because they didn't have, you know, Google Maps. Uh, 
um, camping supplies, and, and, and that's and it's just everything. Uh, clothing, weapons and ammunition, medicine, books, maps. Because in the end, once they left home, they had to go from the border of Illinois and Missouri, where the Missouri River and the Mississippi met. Uh, that's, they started just north of there and came down the Mississippi and went up to Missouri. From there, all the way to the, all the, way to the Pacific. All the way across the Rocky Mountains through unknown territory, really, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And all they could take was what they could fit on these boats. And they had 40-something people with them when they got started. They had these larger boats with supplies, but the large boats didn't make it all the way, not even close to all the way. With all these supplies, with everything that they took, that was enough to get them started. But they knew, they knew from that day that it wasn't enough to get them to the end. They knew it was just enough to get them out the door. So none of this preparation was enough. It was only enough to get started. They understood that as they went, they were going to have to figure out how to make it happen. How to make things happen on the road, on the trail, on the river, in the woods, through the rains, across mostly friendly territory, a time or two a little bit unfriendly um, and they were going to have to figure that out. They were going to run out of food quick. So they were going to have to hunt for it. They were going to have to trade for it. So they brought things to trade with. Um, they were going to run out of transportation. And so they were going to have to figure out how to make more smaller canoes. They could go up rivers but couldn't carry all their stuff. How to have horses at times. They were going to have to make all these things happen as they went. And so if you think about the bravery and just the, the, the confidence these people had to have just to go. But it wasn't simply confidence that they could make it. Because many people went west, many people went on trips like this and didn't live. But it was confidence that what they were doing was worth it. They had passion for the goal that they were given, so they went. They went instead of sat on the sidelines. But most people stayed on the riverbank. A lot of people would wave goodbye, but most people stayed on the riverbank. Now, I want to share a story with you out of the Bible real quick. And most of the time when we talk about this story, we focus on David. All right, it's the story of David and Goliath, very well-known story. Most of the time we focus on David, but I want you to focus on the Israelites here. Not David, not Saul necessarily, just the nation of Israel. Because this is a story where an entire army was willing to sit on the sidelines because of fear. They, they, were at, they were an army, so they had a purpose, they had a goal, they knew what they were called to do, and still yet, they were immobilized. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, The Philistines now mustered their army for battle, and camped between Soko and Judah, and Azekiah, Ephes, Damon. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills, with the valley between them. Just real quickly, Saul was the first king of Israel. They had defeated the Philistines once, all right, and defeated the Amalekites. And with, That may have come later. They defeated a couple of other armies before this, I know, uh, and kind of solidified their area and territory. But they were here in the middle of what we now know as Israel, and on the Mediterranean coast, it was the Philistines. They had five kind of city-states 
and they controlled that area. And so, in verse 4 it says, Then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of the spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight with me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I will defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight with me. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. So we're going to keep reading through 12 and 16, but just this is the story so far. You have the Philistine army moving east towards Jerusalem. So Saul and his army, they move over to to meet them, and they're just facing off. They're just facing off in this valley, and Goliath comes out every day to taunt them. Verse 12, Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shemiah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. So, that's what was going on here. That was the scene. Here is the scene. is You had these two armies for 40 days doing nothing, except one of them had a giant huge warrior that would come out and taunt the Israelites, and the Israelites wouldn't do anything about it. We keep going to verse 20. It says, So David left the sheep with another shepherd, set out early the next morning with the gifts, as Jesse has directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. And as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Now I'm a map guy, so I'm going to throw more up. First one shows you kind of where they're at. You got Jerusalem over on the east. You know, just Jerusalem, Bethlehem, west of the Dead Sea. Then you have the five cities of the Philistines there to the west, close to the Mediterranean. And so they were, they were close to each other, right? Modern-day Israel and what uh, they were given as a people goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. But the Philistines were very strong there. And so on the next slide, it shows you coming in where the Valley of Elah there is in the middle. And you just had these kind of rivers, those little dotted lines, or really streams, not rivers, very small at that time of year especially. And so the Jews came in from the east on that valley. The uh, Philistines would come in from the north on the west side. And then the Philistines were on the southern border. The Israelites were on the northern border, kind of separated by this creek, the big valley in the middle. And they had their camps up in the hills. And then they would march and they would come down and they'd face off, right? 
they would face off, and if you watch like old movies and stuff like that, you'll see these armies come out, and they'll face off and everything else, and sometimes they'll fight, and sometimes they won't. And for this one, for 40 days, they did nothing, except the Israelites shook in fear, because Goliath came out and taunted them and says, one of y'all come fight one of me, and this will decide it. No one else has to die, just one-on-one will do this. They were there to fight. They were called out as an army. They had already won multiple battles against the Philistines and other nations because God was with them. So why were they so afraid? Why were they so afraid? And I've got this question, why did they let them set the terms? Why did Israel for 40 days allow them to come out and say, oh, we're not going to fight, but we've got this one champion. If the rest of y'all want to come out, send one guy, and we'll handle it here. We have nowhere in the Bible that says that Saul agreed to this. I mean, I really think David goes out to fight him. That's the state of David and Goliath. Everyone expected David to die. Everyone, especially probably his brothers. And if David had been killed by Goliath, do you think the Israelites would have just said, oh, yeah, that's right, he was our champion, we're going to be your slaves now? No, the nation of Israel hadn't agreed to this, but they were allowing the opposition to set the terms, right? They were allowing the obstacle in their way, specifically here, the the giant, literal, giant challenge standing before them to dictate the terms of their inactivity, to keep them on the sidelines, to make them fearful and not do what they'd come to do. They'd come to fight. I mean, I think that's a great strategic mistake. Put your biggest guy out there, and we'll attack and kill him first, and then we'll go blow right over his dead corpse and take all the rest of you. I, I mean, if I'm a soldier in Israel's army, I'm like, this is great. We get the big guy first, and then we just get scared. they get scared, and we just keep moving. But why did they allow themselves to be completely, completely sidelined, stay inactive. I don't know. Just fear, pride, and they called us out, and so we can't really say, no, we're not going to do that. We don't have someone as strong as you, but we don't want to admit it. right? I, I, I don't know what things kept them from moving forward. Fear, pride, insecurity, all those things. What if? You know, what if? Someone goes out and defeats him, are we going to give up? What if someone goes out and defeats him, are they going to give up? So, I mean, we don't even know if this thing's going to work out. What if our guy gets killed by Goliath and they start chasing us? Is the guy next to me on my, on my left and my right, is he going to stay there? Is he going to run? Am I going to run? You know, we get filled with so many what ifs in our mind whenever we see something ahead of us that we know God wants us to do, specifically when we're talking about sharing our faith and trying to impact people around us, we all say that's what we want, but are we doing anything? And if we're not, what is keeping us back? What are the what-ifs that are holding us back? You know, so when I look at this story, and, and like I said, it, it kind of you know, made me think back and, and kind of the idea of exploring to go out where no one else had gone. I mean, you had Lewis and Clark and their companions and they had their boats filled up with everything else. And they left the dock, 
right? At some point, they had to say, this is all we can do to prepare. We've just got to go. And they left. But had they just sat there on the banks continuing to say, what if? Well, what if this goes wrong? What if this isn't enough? What if this, you know, doesn't work? What if we have more opposition than we expect? What if things don't work out the way? And guess what? They were a failure. Did you ever hear that Lewis and Clark were a failure? Well, they were. They were tasked with the one goal of finding a water passage to connect the East Coast and the West Coast. They were given a specific goal and task in mind. They failed. They failed because it didn't exist. But obviously, they succeeded in a whole lot more. But what if they had said to themselves when they got part of the way and realized they couldn't meet their goal, they just came back? Well, then they would have been a failure. They would have not only failed at what they had been given, but they wouldn't have achieved all the other things. Right? They wouldn't have found ways that they could go around and, and do it different ways. They wouldn't have made all the connections. And so, what if will kill us? Because it will keep us from acting. It will keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Instead, we have to say, when? When they left from the, from the banks and they went away, instead of saying, what if we run out of food? It was like, when we run out of food, this is what we're going to do. They knew they had run out of food. They didn't have to question. When we come across people who are hostile to us, when we need shelter, when our transportation doesn't work anymore, all these different things, when we're faced with disease, when someone gets shot, all these things, things are going to happen. We're just going to have to figure out on the way how to keep moving forward. So David shows up here in the story with Goliath, and for 40 days, the nation of Israel is just a bunch of guys asking, what if? Well, what if they beat us? What if Goliath wins? What if I run? What if my friends run? And all of those questions and fears and anxieties and the fact that they allowed the obstacles in front of them to set the terms. Instead of saying, this is what we're here to do. We're here to fight. We're here to defend our land. We're here because the Philistines have come into our land. They're already on our land. We need to push them back. If we don't do it here, it's going to get worse down the road. And instead of doing that and moving forward, they just stayed back. And so David showed up. David showed up. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 25, it says, Have you seen the giant, the men asked? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He'll give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. This time of year, that sounds pretty good. David asked a soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And so David asked this question a couple of times. You find out if you read the whole story in 1 Samuel 17 that his brothers started getting on to him saying, you're just trying to get out of work and you just want to come watch the battle. Your pride and arrogance, that's what's getting you out here asking these questions. But David asked the questions a few more times and it got back to King Saul. And so it says in verse 31, and then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. Verse 32, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Verse 33, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. 
But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do this to this pagan, uh, I will do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. So Saul gave David his armor. David tried it on because the Bible says that he had never worn anything like that before. You know, it's kind of neat. Puts on the armor, takes Saul's sword, all of it's too large for him. Saul was a really large guy to begin with, and David was, was a boy, teenager, not grown yet. And so he couldn't fit into this. He wasn't used to fighting with it. None of that would work. All of the normal preparation that in Saul's mind and in any of the different warriors' mind, all of that preparation that they would normally say that you need to be able to go into battle, all of it wasn't enough. Because guess what? All the preparation in the world isn't enough. It never is. We are never prepared enough for everything we're going to face. At least not to the extent where we can just overcome it without a problem. That everything's just going to be easy. It's all going to be handled. We have an answer for every question. We have an instant solution for everything that comes up. Preparation is never going to make that a reality. Now, we can be prepared enough that we have confidence that we can figure it out. But most of that just comes in the difference between are we the kind of people who when we have a goal in front of us that we know God wants, right? I'm not talking about all the things in life we want. I'm talking about we know what God wants, family, you know, serving God, sharing our faith, living for him, doing those things. Are we the kind of people that when we're moving forward to grab a hold of what God wants, then instead of saying what if, we just say when. Instead of what if this goes wrong and what if this doesn't work out and what if this problem happens, we just say when these things happen, I'm going to keep moving forward. God's going to help provide a way. That's what David said. He says, when I've been attacked and my sheep have been attacked by a lion and a bear. He didn't go out and seek a fight with lions and bears. I mean, that's the guy that you, you don't necessarily want fighting for you because he's a little crazy. But when he is faced with a lion and a bear and he's having to fight it in close quarters, he said, when that happens, God provided. Not what if a lion or a bear comes. It already happened. When that happens, God will provide. So I think when I fight this Philistine, God will provide too because I know this is what God wants. So there's a lot of goals you can have in life and some of these same principles work for them. But let's focus on the goals that we know God wants for us because these principles always work then. On the things that we know God wants from us, it's a matter of when, not what if. It's a matter of when we face problems trying to do what God wants, we'll just have to rely on him more. We'll have to find another way because the goal is something we have a great desire for. It's something we're passionate about. And we're not going to allow our, our fears or our, our lack of confidence to keep us from moving forward. You can read the rest of 1 Samuel and you can read through that story. When Goliath came out, 
on the field. He laughed. You have this big, huge giant, and then you have this young teenage boy with no armor, with no sword. David left all that preparation behind, and he just took the sling that he had, his shepherd's staff, picked up five stones, and off he went to battle. And so if I was Goliath, I'd probably laugh at it too. If I was Saul, I'd have probably told David, you're not going to make it. And I guarantee you that they, the nation of Israel wasn't, wasn't going to say, if David got killed, oh yeah, that was our champion, we're all your slaves now. I, sorry, I, I just don't see that happening. So David was out there kind of on his own, probably with no one expecting things to go well. His brothers, probably especially, they were already kind of mad at him. And so he went out. Philistine roared at him, and David answered back, said, I'm going to cut your head off. You've defied the living God. I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to cut your head off. Birds are going to eat your body. And so, guess what? That's what happened. He threw the rock. If you know the story, hit Goliath in the head. He went to the ground. He went to the body. He got Goliath's own sword out, killed him, cut his head off. And he won. And then you've got in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 51. If you'll jump down there to verse 51. It says, Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him, cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. And the bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Shuram as far as Gath and Ekron. So here it was. Like I said, we can talk about David. We can talk about his great faith, which he had. I mean, everyone looking at him that day may have said that's just overconfidence, maybe naivety. But you can see that his actions of faith matched his words of belief. He believed that God was with what they were doing. And because he believed God was with what they were doing as a nation, then he had faith that God would help him as an individual. And so if we can grab onto that, we can be much more like David, who has belief in that what we're doing is what God wants. And because of that, then we have faith that God will be with us as an individual. Or we can just keep asking, what if? And stay on the other side of the brook. Stay up on the hillside and never come down to fight. Stay up in camp and never step out in faith. We can be the ones who say, what if? What if? And just stay on the banks. And never get on the boat. Never leave the dock. We're asking all of us together as a church family to take steps. To take steps every day, yes. But really, three steps this summer. Three big steps, all right, that will help change you and that will definitely help impact our community and be a blessing to what God wants us to do. So my question is, is do you believe that that's what God would have us do? Because if you believe that sharing our faith and trying to get out and impact our community with the gospel is what God would have us do, then you need to have faith that he'll be with you to accomplish your part in it. It's all a matter of believing. I think the answer there is yes. Our question now is faith. As our worship team comes, I want to wrap up with a passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in chapter 1. 
Paul's last letter to Timothy that we have. And he had talked to him about the different things that were going on. And at this point in life, he said, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that you first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. And this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. And in verse 7, it's a great verse. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. You know, a lot of times we hear that verse that we are not people there in verse seven. God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but instead of what? Power, love, and self-discipline. You know, that's one of those verses that you hear or you'll see that it's used for a lot of different things, right? But here in this passage specifically, it was talking about having the boldness to share the good news. The boldness that Timothy needed to have to move forward, to take hold of God's blessings on his life, to lean on the faith that he had, but to step out in faith to share the good news because it's what God wants. And so if you're here today, I, I want to tell you that if you're here, and you may say, well, Jeremy, I'm, I'm here and I even have questions of faith. I, I'm, not, I'm unsure about my faith. I'm unsure about not just what God wants for me in life, but about eternity. Then I would love to talk to you today while we sing. And, and I can tell you that, that I have a foundation because of what I believe, right? Because of what if Jesus did. And I would love to talk to you about that because that offer is there for you today. But if you have trusted in Christ as Savior, God has called all of us to do something great. Sharing him with anyone is the greatest thing we can do. It is the greatest thing we can do. And God calls us not to be people of fear, but to be people of love, of his power, and of self-discipline, and to get up and to go. So do we believe in what God wants for his church, for us as, as, as Christians? If we do, then are you willing to step out on faith, trusting that he will help you do your part. Thank you for listening. We encourage you to take some next steps this week. One, on the back of the card from last week, or create a new card, write down the top five reasons or obstacles that get in the way of sharing your faith. Make a plan to overcome those obstacles. Two, Visit our sermon blog to read stories of people sharing their faith and encouragement to overcome anything that gets in our way. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com connect.